Hi, I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is Beyond Well, the program where we take a look at our interior lives. We love to revisit episodes from past shows often surprising what you're going to find if you go back far enough. This show is a repeat featuring Dr. Brian Goff and Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Welcome back to Beyond Well. There's nothing better to me than when you learn of somebody who's really struggled in their past and then they're out there killing it. I know. (laughs) I mean, it's something very human about us that that's sort of what we want. Absolutely. Isn't it? It's probably because we've been read all kind of stories uh, when we were kids with narrative arcs where there's, you know, really struggle and the hero's journey. All of those kind of end up with some sort of redemptive tell. But it's rare when you see it in real life when somebody has really gone through a tough time and then comes out the other end. I think the stories that... um like are just I've been crushing it since day one and all I do is just win, win, win. We don't like those stories. I don't really like those people very much. I, also, I actually don't believe those don't exist. Believe right. Uh, well, I think that's why we don't like them is because they're so unrelatable. Yeah. So yeah. welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton along with Drs. Brian Goff and Dr. Jenna Lejeune. It's so good to see you guys. Nice to see you. Good to see you. And we're welcoming one of those stories today. Ray Scocellis is with us in studio and Ray has a story that I think many people, especially living in the Portland area right now and concerned about homelessness, are going to want to hear. So welcome, Ray. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I I just want you to start. uh, First of all, you're going to, uh, we are going to be using pronoun they, them. They, them, yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I falter on it, catch me and make me stop and start over because I'm really trying to get that right. That's awesome. Yes. And um, also, just because so many people don't know the story as I do, Start from when you really began struggling. Um, I would probably have to say I first started noticing that I was different than other kids my age around middle school. I didn't realize that I didn't have the same behavioral regulation as a lot of my peers. Uh, so in situations where somebody would be frustrated, I would be about to like th- throw something through a window and when they would just be kind of slamming down a pencil. And I didn't quite understand what what that was. So I didn't really fit in. And that's when I started kind of turning towards doing drugs as a way to cope with not fitting in and not understanding what was going on in my own brain. Um, so I, by the time I was really young, <laughs> uh, I was doing a lot of heavy drugs, including like methamphetamines and uh spending time out on the street because it was unsafe for me to be at home with my family around my young brother and sister. Uh, My family is very close, but at the same time, we knew that we needed to protect them from sort of the evils that that drugs and struggling with mental health, undiagnosed mental health issues can can sort of be a a recipe for disaster. So by the time I was 16... I was already spending a lot of time um, outside of my home. I had dropped out of high school by that point, and I had just pretty much given up on everything. Uh, and then I met a few friends that were like, hey, get clean. And so I started the journey on sobriety. That kind of helped me, but I still struggled with that housing insecurity. And when you don't have your basic needs being met, you can't reach to that point of self-actualization. Mm-hmm. So here I am, this transgender, but don't know the terminology to express the way that I feel about my gender identity. Here I am, this person that struggles with bipolar and PTSD, but doesn't have the vocabulary to express what's going on in my brain. And then 
then I'm also a young kid. Like I don't have the any any sort of skills put in there for me to be able to effectively communicate with the adults that I needed to get help from. So I kept struggling through this pattern of just failure and failure and failure. And by the time I had hit about, I think it was 21 or 22, I had decided that I had just had enough and I couldn't do this anymore. I couldn't keep living this way anymore. And I decided that I was going to commit suicide and I, I cleaned up my, my house and I uh, found a new home for my cat, wrote letters to my family, and I was I was really ready to go. I had everything planned out, and then somebody dragged me to Outside In and was like, no, you need help. And so I found this amazing place. I call it Portland's Disneyland. <laughs> uh, I went to Outside In, and I was met with behavioral health counselors, and I was met by a primary care physician, and they sort of they got into the nitty-gritty, and they didn't just see me as, like, this failure. They didn't see me as this homeless person or this former drug addict. They saw me as, as Ray, this person who needed help, and they wow. Wow. going to let me go without it. I wanted, uh, you know, that's, you packed so much information into such a short period of time. So I want to break down a little bit of it if I, if I can. I think a lot of people don't understand why young people who are having problems with their behaviors and impulses turn to drugs. Mm. What was it that methamphetamine did for you that allowed you, even in that moment, to kind of calm down? It... It was the the camaraderie that I had with other people that were struggling, mm. that we were all kind of in this together. And the other thing is uh, I come from a, a family of large people. We're big body people. And I was living in Orange County, California, which is a very... Uh, cookie cutter kind of <laughs> place to live when you are very much outside uh, yeah. of the box. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and that was, that was another thing is I was like, oh, you mean I can go two weeks without eating and drop 30 pounds? Like, sure. Why wouldn't I do this, wow. this drug? Uh, so yeah, there was a lot that went into why I personally did drugs. It wasn't just because it was there. Um, it was given to me by an adult that I trusted at a very young age. Uh, I thought that I was buying weed and they gave that to me on a CD case and said, well, you paid for it, so you can have it. And that was the beginning of that journey. Wow. Yes. So uh, the the years spent kind of in and out of a street life were, uh, I imagine, pretty harrowing because it's not like even when you you get in with another group of kids that mm-hmm. you become safe, especially as a person in a body, a young body, there's always the chance of victimization. So mm-hmm. did you have multiple victimizations when you were on the street? I did. Yeah. So, so what I'm trying to get at here is the way that the cycle gets worse and worse and worse because the drugs end up making you more of a victim. You're um, now in with a group of people who recognize your ability to be victimized. And so it's like I'm trying to counter a lot of the just the misconceptions that regular people have when they look on the street and they see kids who are homeless. Mm -hmm. Because I think that what happens for a lot of people in society is they want to tell themselves a story about why that person is there. About why they the want, other, exactly. Yeah, they want yeah. to be able to say yeah. they made these really bad choices right. sure. and they did that for themselves and they chose that lie. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the things. It, can I just jump in yes, there? Please. Yeah. So Ray, one of the things I was resonating with that I really appreciate you brought out is 
kind of the the desire for belonging and the sense of not belonging that can fuel us making decisions that in the long run aren't aren't good for us but if if i was thinking about what you were talking about there sheila like all of us can connect with that desire to belong like mm-hmm. that is such a, an ingrained part of all human beings and if we feel like that that we don't belong in the cookie cutter world or we don't belong even in our own bodies or we don't know what's going on with our mind well of course we're going to do the things that help us find a community with other people who are also sort of struggling in that same way that just that just makes sense to me yeah absolutely it's fascinating to me that it took ray 22 years to find a community where they said, let's help you. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what yes. is so stunning mm-hmm. to yes. me. Yes. But still in a pl- all of that time, there yes. was nobody who said, hey, wait a minute. There's this program or there's this path that you can take. Or did you know about this? Or did you, you know, or maybe you weren't ready for the message. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I, I wanted to say really quickly before we move too far on is I did have a full time job the entire time that I was on drugs mm-hmm. and on the streets. And I think that that's an extremely common misconception that people yep. have when they walk by somebody who's houseless or living out of a car. They're just like, oh, you know, they're just out there doing drugs all day and not doing anything else. And it's like, no, I, st- I still held down a full time job so that I could afford food and so that I could afford drugs. Uh, that was. Yeah. Yeah, I just something worth worth mentioning. I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, again, that is a way that we other people that are different than us we think, oh, you're just lazy, you're just Mm -hmm. making bad choices, you're just whatever, and we don't see you as, oh, you're actually the person that's checking me out at the grocery store as well. Yeah, yeah, and much of your life looks like my life Mm -hmm. or anybody else's life Mm -hmm. uh, except for a few important distinctions i thought it's interesting too that um, community or the desire for community is what got you sort of on the drugs Mm -hmm. and it's also the thing that got you off right yeah and that this community and belonging you talked about going uh and finally getting help and it's like i was met with this person and this person and this person Mm -hmm. and this community of people rallied around me and it's like, yeah, and you roll back a few years, and it's, I don't understand myself, nobody understands me, mm-hmm. I don't know people like me, and here's this community of people who are rallying around me, and not so much helping me, but getting me, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. What, what programs specifically did Outside In introduce you to that really seemed to resonate with you? The the biggest life changer for me was meeting Heather Brown, who works in the youth department. She's now the youth department director, um, but she took time out of her day and she sat down with me on a bench in a hallway and was just like, what's going on with you? Like, just hmm. tell me what's going on. And I told her and she drilled down and like just some sort of magical ninja. I don't know. I don't understand how she did it, but she she heard me. And then she said, what it sounds like you want to do is it sounds like you want to go back to school and you want to get a better job. And I was like, how did you get all of that from the nonsense that just came out of my mouth? Like, I'm just sitting here like, oh, I'm broke all the time and everything's terrible and I'm tired of being poor and I'm tired of worrying about losing my housing. And she was like, well, it sounds like you want to go back to school. So she actually wrote a letter to uh, FAFSA, which is how you get your student loans, and said, like, you know, hey, this person really wants to get into school. I know they're not over 25, but they don't have access to their parents, uh, you know, like Social Security information. That was not something that my family was going to trust me with or their tax forms, you know. Right. I was still 
still earning that trust back at that time. And so she wrote a letter on my behalf and she got me into school. Uh, so I started going to college and I became a medical assistant. And some years after I came back to outside and to work as a medical assistant and wow, be, be the person that, that helped me at one point. Wow, that's so fantastic. Uh, I was thinking about that, uh, you know, when my late husband was sick and he was put in psychiatric care and just like loaded down with psychiatric maggots. I thought if I had it to do over again, I would have hired an accountant for him because he was overwhelmed with his business, a personal secretary to help him walk through all of the decisions mm-hmm. that he wasn't making very well. I would have hired a personal trainer mm-hmm. who made him get out and get exercise every day, a sleep hygienist. I wouldn't have done the whole route of like, you've got to go away from society. You're a loser. You, you're going to be drugged the rest of your life and this is over. I would have helped them with the concrete things that he needed to live a better life. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened for you. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah, there's that. I call it Portland Disneyland because it's truly, it's a magical place. Like the people that are in that building helping the, you know, Portland's most vulnerable population have something in them that you don't see in in other people. And it's this this selflessness and this true understanding of the human condition. Like you don't, you know, not all of us are fortunate enough to go get psychology degrees and like truly be able to understand what's going on in our brains. So we just have to do it through experience and reading and going to seminars. And then, you know, we have these these practices with, with real life people. And I, it sounds bad to call it practice, but that's essentially what it is every time you talk to people you get better and better at listening ah that's so good because the census just came out and our homeless population has now increased to 2,800 people every night in the city of Portland living without shelter, I want you to just speak to what you see, uh, what you think some of the trends are that are increasing this problem for us in the city. It's certainly become more visible to those of us who have homes and who try mm-hmm. to walk around on the sidewalks and freeways. So what's happening in your mind? Well... It's definitely like my personal opinion. I don't have any evidence to support this, but I would have to say the the housing prices is is such a huge thing. I mean, I I have a good job now. I work forty hours a week, and I still there are some months where I'm like, oh man, I really hope I can pay rent on time, and it's not going to be a couple days late. Uh, you know, the average price of like a two bedroom in my complex is over sixteen thousand dollars. So that's eight hundred dollars a piece for for one person if you get two roommates 16, in there. Sixteen thousand or sixteen hundred. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to catch it just so that people don't go, yeah. wow, oh I'm not moving yeah. to Portland. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 1600 so about 800 a piece. And, you know, for somebody who's working as a barista or, you know, in a customer service job working in retail, $800 a month is going to be most of what they make. Yeah, no doubt. No so, doubt. yeah. It's There's so also, just according to the census, um, 50% of people self-report as having a mental health problem. Do you see that as well? I definitely, um, through working it outside in and just also walking on the streets, walk down Burnside, you can see there's a lot of people um, that live in this city that struggle from bipolar, schizophrenia, PTSD. There's a, you know, there's a lot of us here with with mental health issues that aren't just um, generalized anxiety or general depression, and it's it's really difficult to hold down housing when you have a difficult time holding down a job Mm. um, or you have just difficulty interacting with people on a daily basis. Mm. When you are struggling to get out of, you know, out of your head for a moment just to put a sentence together, how are you expected to make a house happen and a car happen and a computer happen and, you know, all these things that we use in our modern society and just like in regular civil life, like, you know, you go home, you go to your house, you go on your computer, you watch TV. 
you can't have any of that when you can't even get out your basic needs when you're trying to tell somebody like I need help mm. or mm. you know this hurts me to try and lift this 50 pound box I don't know if I can do this can I get help you know it's yeah. it's things like that I want to ask you guys about um, just the increase in the amount of of despair that we're seeing around us because if if we if we're now at 2800 people per night it doesn't matter what size your city is, you're about mm-hmm. to see a different change in the way that it looks. And you, we talk often about perspective taking. Yeah. So when you drive today, I was driving on the way here and there's a row of tents and the trash and the filth is really distressing to me. How do I work with my own thoughts, my own perspective taking in order to try to understand what's happening for other people? Uh, well, my approach to this is um i i actually think compassion breeds compassion and so what will happen for me is i'll have sort of this automatic unfortunately kind of ingrained kind of negative thought like right. oh there's so much trash something like that right and then because that's not what my is consistent with my values i'll get really pissed off at myself like who are you to be so judgy of blah 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 and now i'm just in this cycle of more criticism and more judgment and more sort of hatred so if if when i notice that judgmental thought that i have if I can pause and have a little bit of compassion for, man, it sucks being somebody who doesn't want to have those judgmental thoughts and yet they kind of show up for me. Mm-hmm. It allows me to be from a place of compassion then. And then I get to choose how I'm going to respond to the human beings that are there in front of me rather than out of this judgmental thought place. Yeah, I love that. So I start with compassion for me and then that just kind of trickles out to compassion for other people and my values not my feelings or thoughts dictate my behavior Mm. so how would I choose to interact with these human beings that are suffering just like I suffer as well of course preach it right yeah (laughs) sorry sorry no no, don't no I meant that I meant that like amen sister (laughs) amen sister amen sister I you know I don't know that I have any better answer I can say that one of the things that unfortunately I think happens to me is I will see things like a row of tents or garbage and I will think how this impacts me mm-hmm. like well I don't want to walk down that side of the street mm-hmm. or uh, my poor city you know mm-hmm. uh, it used to be so whatever as mm-hmm. as if it ever was but uh-huh. you know that idea right, yeah. of at least right and i forget that there are human beings just like me who have the same kinds of feelings and thoughts and wiring and all of that living in those tents mm-hmm. and um that is a hard thing to stay in contact with for me uh, and i think for a lot of people and that's where um I mean, some of the touch and go of that reality, that sort of moving in and out of being aware of it is where the self-compassion comes from. Like, of of course that happens. But when I touch it, then it's also willingness to feel for a moment that it's like, damn, this problem is so much bigger than I can respond to or deal with. I cannot fix this. What I can do is feel it. Yeah. And hopefully what comes from me is a bit more love and a bit more patience like to drive past all of that and to touch on that 
And then to be finding a parking spot and somebody grabs your parking spot before you get it. Mm-hmm. It's like, where is the room for getting pissed off about that? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Well, right. I'm still in yeah. touch with right. the suffering of my fellow people. Yeah. Can But can I follow up on, on that, Brian? Because I, I just want to be clear here. Um, I don't think that you're saying, and I, I wouldn't say, that there's nothing we can do about it. I think the problem is that when we are in a place of privilege, what happens is we see this, we feel something uncomfortable when we mm-hmm. see it, and so we do a whole lot to try and feel not uncomfortable about it, and that makes us just pretend like the problem isn't there. Absolutely. And so they're absolutely are things that we can do to solve this problem. This is a solvable problem, people. Well, yeah, uh, it, Ray's a pers- perfect it, example. Exactly. It yes. is a solvable problem. Yeah. We need to consume less. We need to be aware of our privilege. We need to make different choices about the city that we're living in. Like, we need to have dense housing. We need, All of yeah. these things. Yes. But the very first thing we need to do is we need to develop the capacity to sit with the discomfort we feel when we see that yeah. yes. so that yeah. then we can do something about so it. I yeah. Think, yeah, and I think when we're talking about I want to do something so I'm not so distressed by this problem, right. Right. that's the thing that I can't do because exactly. there's nothing I can do right in the here and now exactly. to make the garbage or the tents or make sure that everybody's warm last night because it was freezing cold last night. I Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to get away from feeling uncomfortable about the suffering of others unless I trick myself into thinking that they are other. Exactly. That's how you get away with it. Mm -hmm. That's how you get away with it. And you have to be willing to feel. And then out of that, then it's, I'm going to make choices. And even if I don't completely turn it around all by my lonesome, I want to be done contributing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we we, uh, had a great exchange that was about this, many of the misconceptions that people have about the homeless population, especially the homeless youth population. Would you Mm -hmm. talk about some of those? What specifically? There is well, a lot of... I, I love the one that people uh, say, well, they chose that life. Mm. They chose that life. Yeah. I... I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning in a comfy bed inside of a home and goes, you know what, I would love to be freezing right now, uh-huh. and then goes outside and sits in the rain. I don't think anybody gets there. I think that it takes a lot to get, uh, especially youth, out of their homes with their parents. Sometimes they're living in an abusive environment, mm-hmm. and they don't have teachers or counselors or anybody that can be there to support them, so they choose to leave on their own. There's a lot of people out there that are queer, uh, that are trans-identifying, that they, you know, uh, they come out to their parents and then they're told, get out of my house. Mm-hmm. There, are, um, there are kids that just even have... Uh, you know, some some mental health issues and they're not able to articulate those to their parents and their parents are like, well, you know, there. I have a friend who has dyslexia and she left home for a brief amount of time in high school because she was tired of her dad telling her how stupid she was. Mm. And, you know, it's just like, you don't... Mm. There, There is never one true thing that's like, this is the thing. Right, yeah. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of different things, but... Um, one of the things that I kept hearing f- that you all were talking about was that there's there's nothing I can do 
there there absolutely 100% is something that you can do and that is just acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how big of a difference it made in my day when I was sitting out there asking for money trying to, you know, get some gas cuz my friend, you know, had a car and every once in a while we'd be able to sleep in it but we need to find gas money to go drive to a quieter place otherwise we'd be arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would just it, just ignore you like you weren't real like if I don't see you if I don't look at you if I don't talk to you then you're not a problem mm-hmm. and when you just and I do it every day in in my actual life whenever somebody says like you know hey do you have a dollar I say I don't carry change but I hope you have a great day mm. yeah. and it's just it's a very simple statement and that that did make me want to clean up a little bit more out of myself because could you imagine just being ignored and like especially uh, where it is downtown off Burnside, there's a lot of bars out there at night. I've been out there on a break when I worked at Voodoo Donut, and I had a guy spit on me and try and throw me five dollars, and he was just like, "Here, you look like you need it." Mm-hmm. And I was 21. And I was at work, mm-hmm. wow. but you know, I don't dress like a very professional person. I just wear street clothes and that and that's that was that guy's opinion of me in that moment. And wow. so you have to realize whereas there's so many that ninety percent of the population is just gonna be like, Oh, this makes me uncomfortable, so I'm just gonna kind of skirt by it a little bit. There is ten percent of the population that is actually being very mean to the houseless lake population. Yeah, mm. I, a friend of mine told me a statistic. Um she works on one of the vans that goes and, and provides really crucial toiletries and things like that to people who are houseless and she said it's every seven minutes that a female who is houseless is either approached or attacked Mm -hmm. physically like that just the physical harm to women in particular on uh the streets is is so difficult that many of them turn to methamphetamine so that they don't have to sleep yeah Mm -hmm. and i you know i just if i can piggyback on that when we were talking about mental health uh difficulties being a contributing factor to houselessness yeah and if you're homeless uh i mean how is that experience not going to be traumatizing Mm -hmm. how is that experience not Mm -hmm. going to be just feeling very overwhelming how are you not going to feel immense panic and not want to have your you know back anywhere other than up against a wall How are you not going to want to run to something to escape how you're feeling? Because it's such an extraordinarily um, extreme way of living in terms of pain. You know, I had uh, one time I had to go to Seattle and get a passport and I was carrying the suitcase that I was going to be taking with me on vacation because I needed it. So uh, I went to Seattle in the morning, did the whole passport thing, and then had to wait the entire day in Seattle until my passport was finished. And it was seven hours of trying to lug a suitcase Mm -hmm. and find a place to rest. And boy, I will tell you, that experience, just that one day of not having shelter, of not really having a place to stay, Mm -hmm. uh, I could have checked into a hotel, but I didn't want to spend the money. And in fact, as soon as I started recognizing that this must be what it's like for a person who is just trying to find their way in a city, you're told to move along. You, if you don't buy something at a coffee shop, you don't get to sit there. You don't get to just sleep anywhere you want. No, there, there's not places to go and just chill out for hours on end. Yeah. And I think everybody should go through. It. I mean, that was a weird experience, and it's nowhere near what being houseless is like. But it gave me just a tiny bit of insight to say, oh, this is not fun. 
This is not chill life. Yeah. It's this, brutal. This is not something that I would recommend to anybody. And um, and I and I know that it was just a shadow of, of an experience. But when I was an undergrad in college, a buddy of mine and I um, spent a couple of nights downtown and just picked up some clothes at Goodwill and skipped about a week's worth of showering and just hung out downtown for a couple of days. And uh, the first night that we were downtown, I, I, I so badly wanted to tell someone, we're just doing an experiment. Can mm-hmm. I please use your bathroom? Oh, wow. Because back then there was no place to go to the bathroom. And it's like, I want to go into a gas station and go to the bathroom. I go to the gas station all the time yeah. and use the restroom. And it's like, no, you got to buy something. And it's like, well, I have my driver's license and a $20 bill in my shoe but I told myself I wasn't going to use it. <laughs> so where am I supposed to pee? And uh, we got kicked out of the train station because you can't sleep there. Yeah. And it was like, I get how it's like, maybe sleep during the day so at least it's warm. Yeah. And walk around at night because it's freaking cold. And second night, I remember thinking, you know, if we did something that got us in jail, at least it would be warm. Whoa. Mm-hmm. On your second day, you were having that Isn't thought. That- and it's like I have I have no point of reference because that's a silly experiment and after two days I get to go home and take a shower and wow. eat a big meal. But it's yeah, it's yeah. It's so dehumanizing, Ray. How did you end up piecing yourself back together from that experience? I don't know that I have. Mm. I think that a lot of those things that I thought when I was, you know, just kind of sitting out there being like, when is this going to be over? I think I still have those thoughts to this day. I think that wow. that once you experience that for a prolonged period of time, those thoughts always stay with you. So if I miss a day of work because I was sick, my immediate thought is I'm going to get fired. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to end up back out on the streets. How am I going to do it this time? Wow. So it stays with you forever because it's just it's drilled in every day, day after day when you're out there that you may never get out. Yeah, the mind mm-hmm. works by addition and not subtraction, mm-hmm. right? It's sort mm-hmm. of like when you have that story right. in your head, that story is going to be in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not much we can do to like pull that story out. You can add different stories. Yep. You can add the story of, oh, and I have a stable job, and I do different things now and all of that. But yeah. that's that that other story is, is still there. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think that in order for, and I, and I want you to also answer this, Ray, do you think that in order for Ray to truly recover, to truly be able to be, like we said, on the hero's journey and have that success, they yeah. are going to have to change the narrative in their mind? I don't know what what they would be recovering from. I mean, it yeah. sort of seems to me like you're a pretty badass superstar. <laughs> world, so right. I don't know. Uh, like, I'm not sure what you're recovering from. If I think about what a next step in a journey in your journey might be, mm-hmm. um, no, I don't think it is changing the narrative. That's not the approach I take. The approach I take, kind of in my own life and when I'm working with people, is adding to the narrative and creating the narrative that you want now that you are in a place that you have more resources mm-hmm. and you have more of a community and all sorts of other things where you have the ability to pay attention to those things. You talked earlier and I just I want to highlight this because I think it's so important. We 
you know, Maslow had it right. Like there mm-hmm. is this hierarchy of needs. Mm. If you are worried about who is going to kill you or mm-hmm. assault you or who, how you're going to get your next meal, like, of course you're not thinking about, so what narrative am I creating for yeah, my own right. story? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Oh, God, you're so right. <laughs> is this the you're right shirt so for right. Right. Yeah. right, right. And oh, yeah, it's true, so... though. I struggled with that even this morning. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to this interview. There's going to be, like, these important people there, and I'm going to show up looking like I always do. And You're I was the just most like, important I'm... person here. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know, you know where you thought you were it's going. It's that weird <laughs> mentality that you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be good enough exactly. for the place that I'm about wow. to go. Like, yeah. you're just, you're always stuck in 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 this weird mentality but I will say like in terms of the hero's journey the only reason why I would ever consider myself and it feels so silly to say it but like a success or a successful person is because now I I get to sit here and I get to talk to you and I get to share this story and people are going to hear this and maybe even if it's just one person gets impacted by it then that's one person that I that I help that day exactly and that's really what it comes down to is just like just do whatever you have. Like I, I am a uh, a white person. I have a lot of privilege. I have been able to navigate through the society with that privilege, and now it is my turn to stand up and use my voice to elevate people that don't have the same amount of privilege Absolutely. and don't have the same success right. that I do. Yes. Yeah, you're yeah. right. That story don't need to change. No, <laughs> no way. I also just want to add that you know there is one thing after all of the beautiful things you said about not othering about owning what we're feeling when we're when we're witnessing human suffering that you can get involved at outside in because it's yes. such yes. an enormously great organization yes. it makes those of us who actually want to do something it's that next step for volunteerism for giving money for mm-hmm. giving time for giving support whatever you can do it's outsidein.org yes outsidein.org uh, there are uh, so many different ways that you can plug into to be a part of the movement that they have going on there uh, they have volunteer positions. If you are passionate about cooking, we have an amazing kitchen. You can actually get face to face with the youth that are out on the street, and you can you can feed them, give them that that life giving sustenance, and it feels really good. Uh, you can even help plug in people to get resources to help teach them. Like, hey, do you need to know where to find a shower? Well, we have volunteers that can help you figure that out. Uh, or you know, money is obviously a huge thing. It is a business that that uh, has housing that supports youth that are in transitional housing, as well as young families that are in transitional housing so donations go to help making sure that that a bunch of people can keep a roof over their head and one of my very favorite because i'm such an animal person is virginia wolf Wolf. the doggy daycare and boarding place that is such a great um uh part of outside in and also teaching the youth really important skills Mm -hmm. so bring your pup to to virginia wolf yeah ray so so (laughs) amazing to spend time with you today thanks again thank you Bye.